Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yes, I wish I had never had that experience for sure. But when I think about the upside um, and I think about what my life would have been like had that not happened to me, I don't want want that life. Um, And it would have been, I'd be really disappointed with, or maybe I would have been completely unaware blissfully ignorant but um i don't know i i feel like because of you know all the terrible parts and the terrible loss and terrible devastation that i've been privy to the flip side to it has been like the most wondrous realization about humanity and kindness and selflessness and you know having a generous spirit I'm your host, Natalie Drenovac, and this is The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. Today's guest is the highly respected and renowned partner of the prestigious Kennedy's law firm, Rebecca Giles. And some of you may even have seen her recently in the media, as she's currently representing Senator Sarah Hansen-Young in a highly publicized defamation case. In addition to her work, Rebecca serves on industry boards and committees, including the Centennial Parklands Foundation and Greater Western Sydney Football Club. She's a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and ambassador for the Fertility Research Clinic at the Royal Hospital for Women Foundation. I was so grateful to have the opportunity to interview Rebecca, as not only did I really want to discuss some key topics that so many women face, such as divorce and parenthood, slut-shaming and sexualization of women by men in power, but a key aspect of her life and that she survived the 2004 tsunami and the absolute mental toll that surviving a natural disaster has on a person, and to really uncover how it is that Rebecca has rebuilt her life. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me. No problem. So I always start with a rapid fire to get some quirky facts. Who was your first celebrity crush? Ooh, um, probably Brandon from 90210. <laughs> uh, you're on a plane tomorrow to any holiday destination. Where would you tell the pilot to go? <sighs> Ibiza. What's the one book that's had the greatest impact on you? goodness probably the bible actually really yes you know this is going to sound so so stupid of me but I'll be honest I remember when I was speaking with someone about how they read the bible and I was always like oh people genuinely read the bible like a book 
And they were like, of course, it's a book. And I was like, oh, but I'd only ever really known about it in the sense that like everyone had a Bible, mm. but it didn't seem like anyone just read the Bible. I don't think people do read it as a book. I mean, the plot development is terrible, I have to say. It's just a selection of little, I guess it's like sort of short stories. Yeah. Um, and I only read it because I grew up being the only book I was really allowed to read. Yeah. And I read it cover to cover and learnt it cover to cover as a, a game, really. So it has had the biggest impact on my life than any book. Wow. Not necessarily saying it's a positive impact, but... <laughs> no, but I, I just think it's great. And I have friends who can quote certain passages from it. And I just think, wow, like even mm. my favourite books, I certainly can't do that. So it is quite profound, obviously. It's had a huge impact on many people. Uh, three words that you would use to best describe yourself. Oh... I'm a theater, energetic, um, emotional. And lastly, who's a key female influence in your life and why? My mother. Uh, my mother is the mother of all mothers and um, the way in which she loves people has, uh, it, it sort of compels me to do a lot better and to um, live a much better life. Okay, so as we jump into this, as I was sharing with you, it's not that there is so much about you that I could Google in, uh, in researching all of this, but obviously the, I would say the most formative event that happened in your life was the tsunami mm. in 2004. Uh, and so you lived through and survived that. And for those who are thinking to yourself, which tsunami? The 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, which I actually remember, you know how there are most events in life where you go, where was I when? And if I'm doing my math right, I was 14 years old and I actually can't remember. Maybe. Yeah, but I can't remember where I was when that happened. And yet, as I start to think back on all of those different news stories that were coming out and the videos and everything, you just go, wow. Like, as I said to you, you cannot comprehend that kind of experience. Mm. And so... Obviously, from what you've shared, you've survived with many scars and procedures and you've certainly had to repair your body and your life. Yes. But looking at you, just to say, like, you wouldn't know it. Do you That's because I'm mean? wearing clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen many uh, swimwears on Instagram. But I'd love if you could speak to the impact it had on you physically and psychologically and what your pathway and process was to get you through such a... That's a, that's a big question. Well, I mean, physically, um, you know, that wave devastated my body um I was um in my bungalow when the wave hit um which sort of shielded me from the impact of the wave and actually probably was um the reason I survived um but I was I sort of was carried along with the wave and was hit by debris from many many different angles I had multiple multiple fractures lacerations terrible internal bleeding and when I was ultimately, um, by the time I was rescued, I, had, I was really ill. I had a very bad fungal infection um, that um, almost cost me my life. And I, when I was medevac back to Australia, um, several weeks later, I was in a coma for some time and I had multiple, multiple surgeries, lots of skin grafts, um, all sorts of surgeries um, and by the time I was discharged into sort of re rehab, I was, you know, 35 kilos, 
I couldn't walk. Um, I had terrible fractures that were never really repaired properly um, and still had many, many reconstructive surgeries. Um, in fact, you know, to this day I still have those surgeries. So um, in terms of the physicality, I mean, I can walk and talk and dance and move and do all the things that everyone else can do, but um, my bones are kind of a bit funny and my skin's a bit funny and I have lots of scars and bits and pieces, but for all intents and purposes, I'm now, you know, 15 years later, a fully functioning girl again. Um, and it was a long road. I mean, I was incredibly fortunate. I had the very, very best doctors and I got all the favours because I was a tsunami girl and I was lucky enough to come from a wealthy country like Australia and I was privileged and I could afford the best doctors and all the rehab that I needed. Um, and so I really am the result of, you know, first world modern medicine. So, yes, so the road to recovery in that respect was difficult and not without its problems. I mean, we, I had many, many failed surgeries, a lot of reconstructive surgery that was incredibly painful. There were moments that, you know, psychologically I was sort of, you know, most certainly at the precipice of a very dark sort of place. Um, but, you know, I was – I often think, you know, had this been – you know, if I had I been, you know, it was cancer or if I was attacked by somebody and I had these injuries, would I have faced this challenge any differently? Because because then I know that it was a natural disaster, it was nobody's fault. What was I going to do? You know, was I going to sit at home and cry and not go to physio and not try to walk and do all those sorts of things? And I just felt, and maybe because of the enormity of it, maybe because I knew that 320,000 people had died, that I couldn't be, you know, Eeyore in the corner crying about my injuries, right? So it helped because it was, because it helped because you didn't have anyone to point the finger at? Yeah, I think so. I think so that it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. Um, it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just one of those things. And look, life was going on around me. What was I going to do? Um, and, you know, and also seeing the devastation, you know, in areas like Banda Arche and things like that. I mean, I didn't even know what had happened to me until many, many months later. And by that time it was well chronicled and photographed and um, it was presented before me when I was in hospital and I just couldn't comprehend. I literally could not comprehend the scale of this disaster. And so I felt that perhaps my personal struggles physically and, and emotionally were nothing compared to what had happened. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of, it was a real pull up your socks type moment. Um, get your act together. Um, and goodness me, I'm very, very lucky to be alive. And I'm very, very lucky now that I can walk and I can read and I can write and all of those things. And I was back in Australia. Yeah. I read, um, as I was preparing for this, there are stories of those who had survived and they say that they dream of water emergencies and they have the feeling of being separate from everyone else who has not gone through that experience. Do you ever go through that? Yeah, I do sometimes. I do. Um, you know, if I had, if there was one psychological effect um, that was ongoing for me is that I had, you know, I really struggled with morbid thoughts because I saw such awful things. And, you know, terrible, um, terrible, terrible things. And it meant that when I went back into the, to the normal world, 
Um, you know, I'd go into a food court and I would suddenly imagine everyone dead. Oh, wow. And it was just a recurring thing. And I had a fantastic psychologist um, who kind of taught me, and I, he used sort of CBT on me, um, which is cognitive behavioural therapy, and just sort of taught me that my mind um, was trying to protect me from this happening to me again. Um, and, you know, through that, being so sick, and I know that a lot of people speak about this, that you often do separate. You get a feeling of separation from your mind and your body and your soul, right? And, I, and that was very much the case for me. And so me being able to rationalise my mind's reaction and uh, to to this survival really helped me and sort of I learnt to sort of talk to myself and talk my, through, my way through it. And so whether when I might be at the beach and I would be watching a wave <laughs> come towards me and thinking, is that just breaking just a little bit too late? And then I would kind of say, okay, all right, I know why I'm doing this. It's because of what happened to me and, I, and my mind's trying to protect you, me. Thank you, mind. I don't need you to do that for me anymore. And I don't need to have those thoughts anymore and this and that. So that really helped me psychologically move past all of that. And from time to time I have dreams. My daughter has dreams all the time about water disasters. Really? Yeah, it's quite interesting. But That would be like intergenerational trauma. Maybe, yeah. maybe. My wife's all about that. Yeah, it's, very, it's really interesting. But for me, it's, you know, even though 15 years has passed, it's not something that you get over. And even though... I survived and I lost nobody close to me. I met lots of people who did lose people that were very close to them, mothers and children, and I, they are very much in my life. So I, I'll never be able to escape this tragedy. Um, I wish it never, ever happened, obviously. Um, but it's, you know, uh, making it making peace with the fact that that's part of my story has been a big step for me. And you were sharing earlier about the profound effect it then had about a bit of a domino in your life. Yeah, it did. It did. I, I feel like, you know, the tsunami, it's, the tsunami had a hugely profound effect on the way that I viewed life and the way I did things and the way I've inter I interact with people going forward and my approach to challenge now. Um, I think that, you know, the best analogy really is, you know, I often think about those horses who you know racing horses and how they have those blinkers on their eyes and I feel like that event literally took the blinkers off my eyes lifted me up, up over the race up into the sky over Randwick and I'm like oh right okay this is what's going on it was just perspective yeah. just perspective and all the things that I thought were so important just not important um and you know there was a downside to that as well because I sort of thought, well, how could I possibly go back to my life? You know, some girlfriends of mine bought me some of my favourite air freighted fashion magazines in hospital um, and I looked at them and I thought, oh, my God, how could I possibly read fashion magazines after what has happened? Well, didn't you think about your silk dresses? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you, when you yeah, were... Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. When, when the actual wave hit me and I popped out of the water ultimately and I saw the most horrendous devastation around me and terrible death and terrible things, immediately my mind just went into self-protection mode and I just thought, oh, my gosh, I've taken all of these beautiful silk dresses to this island. They're going to be so dirty. I'm never going to be able to get them clean if I ever get them back. 
Now, obviously, that's a totally ridiculous thought when I have a bone hanging out of my arm, but uh, it was obviously self-protection. And so actually returning to that sort of, you know, normality and the the nitty-gritty of life has actually been the biggest gift to me because I did wonder for a while whether I would be just a weirdo who could only deal with life and death and could never deal with the sort of mun- mundane aspects of life and the and reading, you know, it's Italian Vogue. <laughs> but now I do read Italian Vogue, but I also feel like I have those other issues um, more in the forefront of my mind than what I used to. Yeah, that perspective for sure. Yeah. So this is a, this is an interesting question then. So I've read that it, it helps you evaluate. Like when I'm thinking when, and most people who go through traumatic experience, it does help you evaluate your life. Mm. Yet, would you say, considering it's had a very beautiful, profound, ongoing effect, that you would look back and think it changed the course of your life in a better way? Or do you more have that, you know, the idea of like, oh, everything happens for a reason, la, 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 la. Or would you say, you know what? I wish I had never gone through that experience and I would have still enjoyed that path I was on. Uh, I think it'd have to be the former as opposed to the latter. I mean, yes, I wish I had never had that experience for sure. But when I think about the upside um, and I think about what my life would have been like had that not happened to me, I don't don't want that life. Yeah. Um, And it would have been, I'd be really disappointed with, well, maybe I would have been completely unaware, blissfully ignorant, Mm. but... um, I don't know, I, I feel like because of, you know, all the terrible parts and the terrible loss and terrible devastation that I've been privy to, the flip side to it has been like the most wondrous realisation about yeah. humanity and kindness and selflessness and, you know, having a generous spirit because, you know, that that really was the lesson for me in that tsunami. You know, I thought I was really clever and all that and happening and actually I was just such an idiot. <laughs> well, I guess it's like that thing we're all humbled but that was such an atrocious way mm. to get there. And so I yeah, think Yeah, it you- was but, you know, I yeah, it definitely was. It definitely was. Um, but, and you know, look, I, I I had to let go of things that I thought were so important. So, you know... You know, I, you know, I had a colostomy bag, which for a young woman is just the worst, right? Yeah. I had the most horrendous disfigurement and scarring, which I do have to this day. And having to let go of my, like, the, my self-image and everything that I had invested in that was, oh, it was like a very sobering exercise. What was that experience like in terms of getting, getting to know your new body? Because like it was the, a roller coaster. The female body is something that so oh. many of us, uh, we everyone, everyone will always go through their own experiences of it. But I feel like when what you went through was like, you know what? I've had to you, you all these things you judge before it happens, and then you have this new body with all these things, and you're thinking, I'm just so glad I'm fucking alive. Yeah, there was that, but then there's also the. I mean, I remember when I was about sixteen reading Dolly Doctor, and I remember reading a. A letter saying, Dear Dolly Doctor, I had my appendix out and now I have a scar and now my boyfriend doesn't find me attractive. What do I do? And I remember thinking, Oh, that poor girl. Oh my God. <laughs> and now <laughs> I look at my body and, you know, like I know a lot of other women would relate to this if you had a baby because sometimes I walk 
I have a lot of mirrors in my house. I don't know why, but I walk down the hallway naked to the shower and I catch sight of myself. I'm like, oh, who the fuck is that? Like yeah. I can't even I can't even comprehend that that's my body now. But, you know, it's been a roller coaster, but headed in the right direction. And from time to time I get, you know, horrified by it. But by and large I've improved so, so much. It was so much worse. Um, and you know what? I, I sort of having to let go of all the pride I had in my physical appearance overall it has been a positive it has been a positive experience overall but it's it's been infinitely the most challenging aspect of it when it comes to that is it more was it more challenging you getting to know your new body or is it also when you've been with someone else and you've had to show them your body the worst it's the worst also because you know what you don't want to talk about the tsunami every single time you go on a date (laughs) Right, not that I'd be showing anybody what's under my clothes on every day. Let's be clear, but um, yeah, that's that's the difficult part of it. Yeah. Um, and it's then like something's going one way, and then all of a sudden you're like, "By the way, just let me take up. you back to this terrible yeah. global tragedy, <laughs> just to explain why there's a, like a train wreck under this dress." But um, yeah, that's hard. It's it's difficult, but you know, I, I feel like as I've grown older, I've been more um, selective with the sorts of people that I um, associate with and choose to have a relationship with and by and large they've been really good about it. Yeah. And that doesn't bother them. Yeah. Wow. Uh, speaking of, I wanted to shift into a bit more of your personal life. Okay. As you were engaged just before the tsunami mm-hmm. happened um, and then you've since been married twice. <laughs> Uh, no, because I think this is interesting. I think marriage is something that I actually haven't spoken much about on the podcast. Okay. And and I'm sure we'll look back and it all pertains. But doing that bit of a pivot, linguistically, I find the term failed marriage really interesting mm. because there's marriage, then there's divorce, but all of a sudden we, we chuck on failed as opposed to, and I got this from my wife whose um, mother says to her, I had a failed marriage. And Lisa always says, you were married for 20 years. What failure was there in that? Yeah. And so I just think it's so fascinating and I'm curious to know your views on marriage since. Yeah, well, one thing I will say is that the tsunami kind of taught me to live my life quite fearlessly Mm. and less obsessed with the disappointment of others and less uh, placing less importance on the reaction of others. So... You know, for me, getting married to husband one and husband two were the right things for me to do at the time. And in fact, those relationships were amazing when they were good. And leaving those relationships was obviously, it wasn't pleasant, of course, and I I don't condone, you know, everyone choosing the same path as me. But for me, it was the right thing to do not to be in those relationships. And I talk to my children all the time about, you know, the 10 years I had with their dad. And 10 years, that's what I mean. It's a huge yes. amount of time. And it was a fantastic marriage and I got two beautiful children out of, out of that marriage. And I just sort of think, I don't know, like for me right now not being married is the right thing for me. And I don't, I'm not ca- casting judgment on anybody else's life choices but for me. And I know that, you know, some people are a bit disappointed in me for not being married now and that sort of thing. But I don't know, it's my life. And I, I, I sort of made those decisions for myself. And um, 
you know, it took me a long time to be really happy and contented with those decisions because there's so much family and so much, you know, societal pressure and guilt. Well, I was going to say, is your family who are remarkably religious, did they put that pressure on you to stay married? (sighs) No, look, they're the the loveliest, loveliest people. They really are. Um, And so, no, they didn't. Um, But just having that shining example in my life of, you know, what a successful marriage is and having that imprinted in my head as a child. My grandparents were married for 70 years. 70 years. No, 75. It was just short of 75 when they died. Um, So it's hard not to think, you know, well, but I just sort of think they were very, very different people to me. And it's, I think relationships are completely different in today's times. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not to say that I won't find the one in my life if the one even exists or even if that is a thing. But, you know, those relationships served me at that time in my life and I think served them as well. Um, And, yes, I have two demerit points on my record Um, and I don't know whether the um, Office of Birth, Deaths and Marriages is ever going to issue me with another marriage certificate, but it is what it is. Yeah. Where do you think we get these huge expectations from around this idea that one person will give us everything? Oh, movies, art, romance, for sure. Yeah. As a little girl, I mean, you know, didn't you dream of your wedding day? And no. The prince? Nope. <laughs> nope. Have I asked the wrong person no. that question? Well, it's so really for me, I remember being in high school and uh, and I had two friends or I had a couple of friends and they would talk about, I just want to get married and him and this, that and the other. And, you know, back when I was like, sure, I'll marry a man. Um, I remember because I had a, uh, my parents are divorced mm. and I remember thinking, and cause like it wasn't, I guess it wasn't the greatest divorce. I mean, I'm sure my opinion versus their opinion are entirely different, but I remember thinking, no, I want to be successful. I want to be independent. I want to have my own money because I saw the idea of the, like relying upon another. Yeah. And so I just had this completely different perspective of everything, um, but yeah, no, I never dreamt about my wedding. My wife and I certainly weren't even wrapped about getting engaged or married. Like it just kind of happened in <laughs> yeah, a very right. organic way. And like we didn't have the big wedding day. But I know I was sharing with you earlier around, we also understand that like we will probably not give each other everything always. I think that's really important. And I see that in my own life now. I mean, I don't have a partner. But I get so much from other people. Yeah, you have like a fierce group of good people. I have you. the best friends and support network around me. And I get so much of what I might get in a marriage from those people. Um, and then I have my work and I have all my other commitments. And I, I feel really, I have a full, full life. Um, I just, you know, this romantic idea that this one person completes you, I think it's so, so flawed. When you were in your marriages, though, did you think, did you feel that way, that they were giving you everything and completing you? Not always, no. Yeah. yeah. No, so, I mean, I was, I was very much in love. Yeah. But it, it didn't mean, I didn't feel completed. Yeah. I, I love your honesty because I find so much now that marriage has a lot of expectations and I just feel like people are setting themselves up to be disappointed yeah. as opposed to, well, what am I not getting from this and what might I get from that and yeah, a absolutely. bit more of a balance? And absolutely. And, I, you know, people are on different paths and have different states of awareness and evolution and, you know, openness for change and growth and that sort of thing. And so, I don't know, I just feel like 
you, you, I feel, feel like you can grow with somebody and you can evolve and you, it's possible, but it has to be the right person. And if it's not the right person, there's no point in being miserable. Yeah. Well, I think, yes. And I also, I also feel that limitations that some women have, like obviously you are financially independent. Mm. And there are so many other circumstances that make women stay in sure. certain situations. Sure. I accept that. I accept yeah. that. And it's, yeah, I, I say it all the time. Like it's such a fierce choice when you're like and and children yes you know that was a that was a massive factor for me the impact on the children did you have that idea um of hey we'll stay until because i know so many friends who say my parents stayed together until i finished my hsc and i thought but was it miserable and fighting up until then they're like yeah it was and i was like was that good for you well it's it's just you never know you just never know the impact that i mean i know people who've separated who have children and they are very happy. Everybody's very, very happy. Mm. And I know people who are in seventh circle of hell. So you just, I don't know, you can't predict these things. Uh, speaking of your two gorgeous children, mm. um, before I ask you about, because obviously you're the ambassador for the Fertility and Research Clinic. Yes. You're adopted. Did you think about adoption beforehand because of the fact that um, – you were told, you know, mm. after the tsunami and everything that happened, you probably wouldn't be able to have kids? Yeah, that's a really interesting and confronting question for me because I didn't. And not because I have a, I have some sort of issue with adoption, but maybe because I'm adopted, I really wanted to have my own children. Okay. Um, I think that when you're adopted, sometimes that you feel that you're from the cabbage patch. Really? That, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm... To look at me, you can see that I'm Eurasian, so I'm dark-skinned and I was adopted into a white family. So I looked like nobody in my family and I was behaviourally really different and had different interests to a lot of my family members. And so sometimes you just feel like you come from nowhere and the idea of having your own child is actually a really lovely one that you would have your own little tribe, right? So I wanted to explore um, what I could do. I mean, I was obviously devastated post-tsunami when the doctors told me that I would have um, real difficulty conceiving a child. But I kind of, you know, accepted that that was kind of the price that I should pay for my life. Yeah, when I read that you had said that, I thought that's such a a sad thought to have. Mm. Like, I must give away something I so deeply desire. Yes. Because I'm alive. Yes, absolutely. But I don't know, it was like almost some sort of like biblical story almost, but... Um, you know, I was very, very lucky because I had very smart doctors all around me and ultimately I didn't have to make that choice. And also because I had money, which is a big differentiator. I mean, yep. good fertility treatment is very, very expensive um, and not accessible to most people. And so with what you're doing with the Fertility Centre, could you share with the Yeah, audience? so the Fertility and Research Clinic is um, the state's first public um, fertility clinic because fertility is expensive absolutely and a lot of the people that are in dire need of this treatment are just are not sort of the people like not sort of you know normal couples who are just experiencing infertility it's people who are involved in trauma or illness who um, have their ability to reproduce compromised so severely or taken away permanently so um, the amazing doctors there um um, in, in particular, Professor Bill Ledger at the Royal Hospital for Women has been doing some amazing, amazing work. Um, he is a researcher and also a treater of, of patients. 
and he's been able to preserve the fertility of so many people. Um, and in 20 years we'll see the effects of all of that. Um, but the amazing thing is that money doesn't come into it because it's a public facility. And that's, and that's you know, human life shouldn't be an economic choice. Yeah. You know. But when it does come to IVF and things like that, it very much. Absolutely. And it's all, you know, you see couples so many times make cho- cho- lifestyle choices. Do we live two hours out of Sydney or have a child? You know, that breaks my heart that people have to make that type of decision. Yep. Um, when it's something as basic as starting a family. You know, I think perhaps it's just I'm getting to that age where either all of my friends are having children or they're trying to get pregnant mm. or they, they're, they're talking about it a lot more. And it also makes me so aware of the pressure that women are putting on themselves about if they can get pregnant naturally versus if they can't. Mm. And I've had sh- friends share with me who, you know, had to go through fertility treatment that they feel less of a woman because, you know, it's like their bodies was rejecting the notion of what they should be able to do naturally. Yeah, look, it's... It, it is it is such a unique challenge and I can't I can't stress that enough. Nothing can really prepare you for it because if you're I mean like me, I'm obviously a bit of a control freak and not being able to control, you know, a reproductive cycle and an outcome, always knowing that in the normal circumstances there'd be an X percentage chance of falling pregnant. I could deal with those odds and I can adjust those odds and I can adjust the calendar. Absolutely, no problem. But when it was just this inexplicable, endlessly frustrating, painful, I mean, the hormones make you crazy. Really? Oh, crazy. You know, your ovaries that are usually the size of, you know, you know a broad bean become the size of a peach, two peaches, you know, just from, and the overstimulation, it, it, nothing prepares you for it. And then also the inevitable disappointment when you don't fall pregnant. Um not being able to control that and then feeling like you're not a woman and you can't give your husband what or your partner what they want. Um, that's really difficult. Um, Speaking of men, do you find that, well, I certainly the way I always hear it, it's like fertility treatment, it's always, it's always plastered that it's a woman's issue mm. as opposed to like if we're just going standard heterosexual couples here. But it's like men aren't counted into that and it's like, you know. Well, often it is a male issue in terms of, a lot of men's men have issues with their contribution. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean, though. Yeah. Whereas most of the time, if a woman can't get pregnant, she's like, I can't. And then it's like, well, is he sterile? Is his sperm yeah, count right. high? Like, what about the rest of that? Right. But yeah. it always seems like it's thrown upon the woman about it, like it it's, does. You know, and you, you know, can't. you know, it's unfortunately it's just the physical side of it. Yeah. You know, and it's so invasive as well that it very much becomes a female issue. Mm. Um. And, you know, the, the contribution that the man has to make is kind of limited to a little cup. <laughs> Just because it's such a thing being spoken about at the moment, what is your opinion as a lawyer and as a woman about everything that's happening in America and the abortion laws and all of that kind of it stuff? It terrifies me. It really terrifies me. I mean, um, you would have been as obsessed as I was with, um, oh, what's that TV show, The Handmaid's Tale? Yes. And, you know, when I watched it, and I actually read, I read the Atwood book originally and um, I remember thinking, God, you know, that's just, that was, that would be terrible. But as these things unfold. That would never happen. Oh, it's too, it's too bad, you know, laws and a bad Supreme Court decision away from happening. And, you know, I, I, I worry about the state of the world and I worry about this sort of, 
unspoken, insidious, controlling. I mean, it's so, it's so backwards when you think about how hard people worked in the 60s and 70s to ensure that women had reproductive freedom. Mm. This, type, this, this movement at the moment is it's like a dark shadow and it, it terrifies me. Um, I don't understand the obsession to govern other people's choices. I think a lot of it is a mixture of church and state. Yeah, but I just feel like because there's a woman actually in America, I remember reading an article about her and she she's the one who's really propelling it forward. Mm. And I just think to myself, why? Like what does if I were to have an abortion have anything to do with your life? I think at its core it's a religious thing, isn't it? I mean, well, I didn't also realize that Australia has pretty ambivalent ado- uh, not adoption abortion rules yeah, they and do. laws they do like over the number of weeks where you can do it which which states i mean it differs from state to state yeah. well i think a lot of women in australia are being like and i certainly know i did and this is what i think is sometimes the problem you go thank god i'm not there but then how quickly you know quote unquote ideas spread absolutely and it's just yeah. absolutely do you, i mean do you not remember the outrage when tony abbott tried to um Influence are you four eight six in I Australia? Don't about that, no. It was it's that morning after pill, and when he was a health minister, and he tried to say you couldn't get it. Mm, he tried. He tried to stop it, sort of, you know, it, it being rec- being uh, uh, permissible in Australia, and there was outrage, and that was quite a few years ago. Yeah, that was. I, I feel like maybe it was ten years ago or something like that. I'm not quite sure, but I just I'm, I'm waiting for the outrage now because that's essentially what's happening. It's church and state. It's sort of, or maybe it's not church. It's maybe a moral thing. There's maybe certainly it's not religion, there is a lot of there is a lot of religious um, uh, influence, especially in America. Mm. But I think, yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes I go, oh, do I just not know about it because I'm not around it? And then you see it, and then I love when you see the memes across social media, which is like, if a man um, had to get an abortion, you could get it at an ATM. Absolutely, and, I love that at yeah. a gas station. Yeah, I love that meme. But you know, I feel like what worries me is that I. I live in an echo chamber where yeah. everyone that I'm around thinks exactly the same as what I do. And, in fact, there's a, a whole religious right out there that mm. is influential and powerful. Yeah. And so I can laugh at the memes, but, you know, who knows what our world's going to look like in five or ten years. What do you feel as women we could or should be or making sure we do? Uh, vote. V- yeah, v- vote appropriately. <laughs> you know, that's the only way to change is to make sure that the people who are legislating over our lives are reflecting our views yeah i feel like the most recent election i mean it's a whole other topic um (laughs) don't start me on that (coughs) i just feel like sometimes in life you just think you know you look back at atrocities like hitler and the holocaust and you know i think we, we can even just end there and you think how did it happen Okay, we weren't aware of it. The world wasn't so connected, all the rest of it, right? Mm. And then now we are so connected with social media and things happen and you just think, oh, wow, that's horrible. But nothing happens. Yeah, I feel like I feel like the rise of Trump has and the sort of, you know, how we kind of laughed at him at first and then he became president and we're like, oh, okay. And a number of his initiatives are, have been almost hilarious but then they became law. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I don't know, I feel like we might, what could be frogs being boiled, slowly boiled. We're just sort of 
It's just happening around us. Around us and we're not actually realising that it might, and while we think it's amusing and ridiculous, it's real. Well, I feel like, um, I feel like everyone is really stopping laugh, like they're stopping to laugh now. You know, like at first it really was hilarious and then now you're a bit like, holy shit, hmm. what is going on? And I mean, I wouldn't say that our, like I think a lot of people go, I live in Australia, it's so wonderful and all the rest of it. But if you do look at our politics and look, I'm an amateur when it comes to it, hmm. but you do see how it is slowly quite conservative and all of these things are happening and you think, holy shit, like what might just happen around the corner? I know. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of, <laughs> so speaking of Donald Trump and sexism, um, you are a incredible, actually I should emphasize this, you became a partner at a very prestigious law firm by the age of 30, which mm. for those who don't understand what that means, it's fucking incredible. <laughs> um, I would love to speak a bit about not just your Sarah Hansen Young case, which you are the lead defamation lawyer on, but before we jump into that, because it's so based in sexism and all the rest of it, um, what is defamation so people do understand it? So defamation is, um, it's a tort. So it's a cause of action. Um, and that is um, if somebody um, lowers your reputation in the eyes of another person, um, it's, it's a way in which you can get a remedy from a court and it's usually in the, in the matter of damages. Gotcha. So I would like to understand this. Uh, like I said, Lisa has a law degree and I said to her, well, what's really the big difference between defamation and then the horrendous harassment you see online now with social media mm. like how do you differentiate the two to be honest with you there is no difference i mean there's people are defamed every day and with the ease of public i mean 50 years ago there would be newspapers and people would write letters mm. and send facsimiles and things like that and now there is such an ease of publication an ease of anonymous publication as well and social media is really i mean that's really where it's at um People are defamed daily. And in fact, most of my cases these days are the defamation is published on a form of social media. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, because I was thinking about that and I thought, you know, it's just such a cesspool of horrible things now when you go look at And even um, just before this, I was watching a, a TED talk about everyday sexism. And as you scroll through the comments, mm. it's then people then completely going the other way and you think just these keyboard warriors. Absolutely. They could not actually hold an opinion of them like for themselves in Absolutely. real life. But behind that keyboard they can Ooh, just say. I know. They're and, very loud, aren't they? Yeah. And it's mm. just, you know, what? I never understand why people do it. What makes you so miserable in your life that you must piss all over someone else? I just really feel that those people are just want to be heard. They want... You know that they have an op they have a platform in which they can say something, anything, yeah. and usually, you know, a controversial comment attracts attention. Yeah. So speaking about the Sarah Hansen Young case uh, in a bigger, broad scheme of everything, could you share a bit about what it means? So this is a case um, in which the senator has sued former senator David Linehelm um, in relation to comments he made in the media about her. Um, it sort of stemmed from a debate in the Senate about the right for women, right or, or in relation to whether or not women, sorry, whether importation laws should be relaxed to allow women to carry tasers and other and have, have other non-lethal weaponry. Um, that was a debate. The Greens opposed that motion. It was a, a motion by Senator Anning. The Greens opposed it, and there was some fiery debate in the Senate. Um, resulting in um, my client making a statement about 
um, objecting to the motion and um, Lionhelm um, saying something back to her to the effect of you should stop shagging men. Because um, that makes a complete normal joint of sentence, <laughs> right? Yeah. Stopping emotion, you stop shagging men. That makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's what's interesting about that case and, you know, I can't really talk about the judgments reserved so I can't really talk about the case itself so much. But um, it's not a uncommon, an uncommon issue in the workplace and that is, you know, women being sexualized or demonised on the basis of being sexual beings. Um, I think it's happened, you know, th- throughout history, throughout time. It's happened to me many times. And um, I think that, you know, it's a real, I don't know how else to say this. It's sort of, it's a, re- it's a really dark side of, of men in many, in many respects. How do you personally deal with it when you've gone through it? Well, you know, I'm a tough lawyer so I can deal with it and I usually the people who are saying to, that to me are idiots so I just ignore them. But And also, you know, I'm a mouthy female as well. A lot of people are not and being sexualised like that is, is actually devastating. It's sort of, it's humiliating, really distressing um, and it's kind of like it disempowers women. Yeah. It's just I when the more I've researched, I said this, I shared this with a friend earlier how... I don't know if it's that I was, I've never uh, come across it, I've never experienced it, or I've just never been in typical work environments that mm. it's been in my face as much. And then at the same time, I thought, oh, but how often do we laugh off, you know, suggestive comments by people and degrading comments that are hollered by men? And then as women, we have to just go, oh, that's just, that's just how it is. Well, look, not every case can end up in the federal court. Every instance of, 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 of slut-shaming, let's call it, will end up in the federal court. Um, and so I feel like, you know, it's got to be called out. It's got to be called out by men in particular. Um, and, you know, Sarah was in a really unique position where she was able to com- call it out yeah. and was able to commence proceedings over it. Um I mean, we don't obviously know what the outcome of that case is going to be, but, you know, I have the greatest respect for her to taking, for taking that risk and actually the financial risk of commencing legal proceedings over it. Yeah, but also to hone in on the fact that our, elective repre- our elected representatives mm. are slut-shaming. But I was wanting to also j- touch on this. It doesn't stop with David. It actually, you know, you've got Trump talking about the infamous grabbing a girl yes. by the pussy. Yeah. You've got the Philippines president talking about raping women. You've got the Brazilian president telling a woman that she's not good enough to get raped. Yes. And we're in 2019. I'm questioning how men are even allowed to be in these positions and publicly abuse women. And for men around and also other women to be like, oh, I can't do much about that. Mm. But that we allow it to continue. There's something very wrong, something like innately wrong, the relationships between men and women and the way in which men respect women. But what do you feel it is? Like, do you think it's this idea that it's easier to say that she laid back and spread her legs for a promotion or is it that men are challenged by women? Because I asked a friend once ago, do you think women are, and this is not interested in anyone telling me that's not true, Mm. but I said, do you think women are smarter than men in certain situations? They said, we have to be because we have to work twice as hard. So, I mean, in the legal world that you live in, that's quite a man-driven world. Yes, it is. With the change that we hope will occur, do you think it's happening because more graduates in 
uh, for law in uh, women they these are. days. Do you think it'll be the boys club that actually starts to change or do you think it'll just be completely an onslaught of women coming in that'll actually create the shift? Well, that's a really interesting question because yes, there are more female graduates mm. than men, but female partners, way less. And unfortunately, it's just the function of women having children that take them out of the race for partnership um, and the succession plan. And so I do think it is changing because there are some formidable females in the law now, judges, partners, barristers, formidable. Mm. And it has changed a lot even when I, from when I started. But I think that, you know, the fact that women have to have a career break to have a child, it just dramatically impacts their chances of rising to the top and p- forming the club. You know, I, I often talk about this boys' club issue and, you know, how the boys' club operates in the law so effectively because, you know, the me- these men generally have women at home so they can stay out and have drinks and form these relationships and form this network and that's the network that, you know, is the key to their success. Mm-hmm. And women are – female partners might be going home to take kids to football, to put dinners on and this and that. And so it is a – sometimes it's a lot harder. Um, but, I, you know, there is certainly um, a fantastic women – a network of women, a, certain, a girls' club that's forming. I'm definitely part of a really strong girls' club. Not because we are so, so – it's not because we just only want to deal with females at all, but there is a an understanding that, you know, we have to support each other for a range of reasons. I've heard you say that uh, you are a feminist but you don't always like being labelled as one. No. <laughs> why is that? I, well, I was curious to know why that just was. Just because of the negative connotations associated that I might be, you know, a rabid feminist who doesn't – you know, who's, who's an intelligent but I am a feminist, but I just don't like, you know, some of the the associations with that word. Yeah. Do you uh, feel that the there's the tokenism and percentage conversation that's currently happening, and especially being in law, do you think it is a good thing that you know there is somewhat being, hey, a certain percentage should be women, is yes, a good thing. I do. I because do. at the same time, it's like then there are people who say, I met someone recently who said, um, I'm a conservative feminist, and I didn't quite understand what that meant. And I was like, could you share a bit more about that with me? And she was like, well, I believe in, you know, women, et cetera, but I don't believe that, um, you know, my husband should have to hire a assistant just because they need to increase their numbers in it being a woman. And I mean, I had my opinion on that, but I'd love your mm. perspective on mm. why that's important. I think that when there's sort of like a systemic, like a, a problem, that quotas, percentages and things actually make a difference because even though that it's it's – Look, you've got to start from the proposition that there is going to be a female and male candidate that are equally worthy. And the thing with quotas and things like that, it just makes sure that there is representation of an unrepresented group. I have no issue with that whatsoever because I believe that there will always be a, a worthy candidate from, from both sexes. And I think that, you know, in particular industries and in particular positions – um, when there's an underrepresentation, it's only going to be quotas that's going to actually fix that because then females will be in that area and then it will happen organically. Yeah, and then they can have... There's so many examples of where it's worked. So many. In what sense? The... Where, where quota systems have worked. In university places, um, females getting becoming, you know, regular engineering students, for example. Yeah. It's funny how um, the, moment, the moment of privilege is challenged everyone's like, oh, well, that shouldn't be the case. Mm. Whereas most of the time, no, 
male in a boys club is ever going to say, well, no, I shouldn't have gotten that promotion just because or that role just because my dad knows so-and-so. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I think you just hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny world we live in. Um, I just want to quickly go back to the slut-shaming thing. With undermining women, rather than um, – how can I how can I phrase this? I'm just worried about what we're doing now and how that's going to have an ongoing effect with the younger generation. And I mean, like, for example, you have two children, mm-hmm. a boy and a girl. And do you have to teach her how she'll have to deal with being slut-shamed and teach him not to slut-shame? Do you know what I mean? And then who teaches that? How do we make sure more people are educated on this? And just how do we do better day to day? Yeah, it's something I really struggle with because, you know, if my son ever hits my daughter, it really triggers me. Oh, like when they're mucking about? Yeah. Never, ever, ever hit a woman, ever. Mm. It's not funny. Um, Or if he calls her fat or something like that. I mean, these things, like, like, you know, you see it. The impact of those sorts of things down the track. Um, look, I really hope that I don't have to teach my children that and I hope that the way that I live my life and the way that I treat other people is an example to them as to how they should live. But they, you know, my, I'm not the only... I have limited exposure to my children every day and they're going to learn from multiple sources. So, you know, I, I guess the point is I have to be just vigilant about, you know, the values that I subscribe to and making sure that my children, you know, understand what is right and what is wrong. Um, particularly, you know, for my, my son, I feel like the change, with all of these change. I mean, how many females are going to say, look, oh, oh, I don't think that I should be treated equally? Of course, all the females are on board. It's the men where I feel the change has to come from. Yeah, well, I think that that's it. And how do we make the conversation more digestible? Mm. Because all of a sudden, every man's like, it's not me. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, it's all right. You don't have to say it. You just have to show how you're also Absolutely. progressing the conversation Absolutely. forward. Absolutely, but also also calling calling it out. Yeah, you know, there's so many good men out there, and I, you know, I do not hate men at all. I love men. Um, so many good ones out there, and they're the ones actually who have to be vigilant in their little boys' club and in their whatever about calling out the sort of conduct um, that we're complaining about. Yeah, I recently had a conversation with two guys, and I as this we were talking about all of this, and I said to them, "Well, what do you do if your friends are making jokes?" And one of them immediately said, "I absolutely put a stop to it." Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And then the other one said, "It would depend." And I, I applauded the fact that he was being honest and yeah. wasn't just trying to be, you know, a champion. And he's like, "It really would depend. It would be depend on the way it happened." And then I got into the conversation around, "Well, what would you do if one of them said that um, one of your best friends had sexually assaulted them?" And you could just see the moment where they were like, "Oh well, I don't know if my friends would do that." And it's like, but that's the whole point. Most yeah. things that happen when it comes to things like sexual assault, it's by someone you know and yeah, trust course, and all the rest of, of it. And so, yes, I do agree. I do feel like it is men who actually are the ones changing this conversation. Mm. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. That's okay. Before I ask you my final question, where can everyone find you? As in, where can they co- contact me, or where they well, can fi- where, where can they find me, you. like in the world? No, just like contacting you. You know, either it's LinkedIn or oh, it's right. an email yes, or yes, it's yes. Instagram. No, no, I'm or... active. I'm, I'm active on all the channels, so I'm on the LinkedIn. I'm on the Instagram. Um, although my Instagram is just silly photos of me and Taryn going to functions. Um, but no, 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 I'm, I'm contactable, and I'm also uh, my my firm website 
is online. I'll put everything in the show notes. So my final question, you're standing in front of a room of 10,000 women and you're able to offer one piece of advice. What would you say? One piece. Goodness me. Oh, Natalie, you've asked me a really hard question. You can take a moment. It's my one piece of advice. Mm. Okay. Truthfully, it's a little bit naff, my one piece of advice, but, and it's the one thing that I have learned, my one big lesson is that you are so much stronger than you think. And I wish that somebody had maybe said that to me sort of when I faced all of these big challenges and, you know, I never thought that I could do a lot of what I've done and I've just, I've actually genuinely been amazed by how much pain and how much physical pain and how much hardship and all all those sorts of things I've been able to handle and it not being an issue. Um, And I think that, you know, in life people will have their own tsunami. It doesn't have to be a big wave, right? It could be anything. It could be a a loss of, you know, a relationship, sickness or whatever. Um, And I know that, you know, at those times, those crisis ground zero times and people... You know, that's a formative time where you are resilient or you're not yeah. um, and you collapse in a heap or you thrive, right? Um, and I just think that knowing that you have, you actually have the ability to, to survive um, is, is such an important thing. And I don't know, like I've seen so many, I mean, I've seen people who are, have been in my exact situation and they've taken a very different path to me um, and I often wonder what, what, what is it? What's the thing that's overwhelmed them and they haven't been able to get back up again? You know, what is it? And I feel like it's just this self-belief and inner strength and, um, you know, I guess, I don't know, like the ability to see past that moment, you know, it's that, it's that resilience factor. Yeah. I love it. You're a formidable force. Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Modern Women. If this content is delivering value to you, it would be so helpful and appreciated if you head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher and rate and review us as that helps us build this incredible community. And ultimately, that is what this is all about. Building this community as big as we can to help as many women as possible and all of your ratings and reviews truly help with that. And before I go, a shout out to Chunky Love for the original music and to Mr. Darren Lake over at Podpace for helping me produce this show for all of you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.